Well, a couple of weeks ago, the warning went out. And as the people of southern Florida heard it, everything changed for them all of a sudden. Instead of going to work like normally in school and whatever they had to do and go play with their friends, etc., they began to prepare for the storm that was about to hit the coast, Hurricane Aaron. Life changed for them. They began to tape up windows and they began to gather their belongings and they began to do whatever it would take to find a place to hide from the storm. They evacuated, they headed out of that area and thank the Lord it wasn't as severe as some hurricanes have been, though there was a lot of damage. But that warning call that they received changed their whole life. Well, the book of Zephaniah is much like that warning call. It is a warning call to Israel and ultimately a warning call to us to really consider our lives, to consider what's coming, to consider what's ahead for us and for this world. So if you turn with me to the book of Zephaniah, now let me tell you where it is. It's the fourth to the last book in the Old Testament. So turn to Matthew, turn left, Go through Malachi, through Zechariah, through Haggai, and then you'll find this little book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. First first verse of Zephaniah sets the context. So let's look at the beginning of this warning call and set the historical context. 1-1 says, The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So it's in the days of King Josiah. Let me tell you a little bit about King Josiah. He was one of the few truly godly kings of the nation of Judah, southern kingdom. By this time, the northern kingdom has been wiped out. All that's left is the small southern kingdom. And Josiah was the great-grandson of Hezekiah, who was a great and godly king. But his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, was King Manasseh, who is considered to be the most evil king in all the line of kings of Judah. King Manasseh was so evil that he took his own sons, several of them, and sacrificed them in the fire to other gods, Baal, Moloch, and others. He set up high places to worship idols everywhere you went in Israel. So no matter where you walked, there would be a high place with an altar to some other foreign god besides Yahweh, the true God. He took the temple of God and and, uh, defiled it with idols, Asherah poles and idols to Baal and all kinds of things. He was considered the most evil king of all. That was Josiah's grandfather. Then his father was Ammon, who was also evil, we're told, although he didn't last long enough to do too much damage. He lived two years, and then his own servants murdered him. Well, then the people took Josiah, who was only eight years old at the time, and made him king. Now, Josiah walked for a while and began to grow, and when he was 16 years old, we're told that he began to seek the Lord. When he was 20 years old, he began to purge the whole nation of idolatry. He began to take down the high places and clean out the temple. And we're told that in that whole process, he discovered 
the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. They'd been lost for years and years. He found them and read them and was so humbled by it that he declared a fast for the whole nation and he began to say, we must worship as he's called us to in this word. He began to implement several of the things in the Old Testament and they had the greatest Passover feast that was ever celebrated in all the years of the kings from David onward. Marvelous feast, we're told. So it was a time of real revival in the nation of Israel at this point when Zephaniah comes to bring his message to the people. Now, if you're like me, when I start, maybe I haven't been doing everything I should, but I start really trying to walk with the Lord and do the right thing and seek him like the people were at this time, like Josiah was leading the people towards, I expect God to be somewhat impressed by that, to encourage me, to pat me on the back and say, hey, you're doing great, keep it up, you're moving in the right direction. Well, listen to verses 2 and 3, what Zephaniah's message is to the people at this time. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wait a minute, God. (laughs) What are you doing here? Why are you giving this kind of harsh message? What's going on? Why? Are you giving us judgment instead of encouragement? Well, that's the warning call of Zephaniah. You see, the message of Zephaniah is God is bringing judgment. It is coming. But he will save a few. He's looking for humble people who will seek him. And so as we go through the book of Zephaniah, we will see four commands, four key commands that help us see what God is really looking for in his people. What's he looking for in you and in me? That we might be the hidden of God. And I use that word hidden because the word, the name Zephaniah means hidden by the Lord or protected by the Lord. You see, what's it take? What does God want in us to protect us from what's coming? That's the message of Zephaniah. So let's... uh, Let's look at this. What, this message of judgment that I just read is, is fascinating to me in verse 3 where he says, I'll remove man and beast, I'll remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. You see, this judgment is going to be a complete reversal of creation. Remember creation? God made the fish, then he made the birds, then he made the beasts, and then he made man as the crowning glory of all of creation, man and woman. Well, now he says he will exactly reverse that creation when he brings judgment. He will destroy it all. The the man will be destroyed and the beasts and the birds and the fish. What Zephaniah is describing is the final judgment, really, here. All of chapter 1 is a message of judgment in Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is describing what was about to happen in 20 years from the time he gave his message Within 20 years, the Babylonian army came in and wiped out the nation of Judah completely. But I think Zephaniah is looking like through a telescope. He's looking long term and he, like sometimes you'll look and you'll see a a range of hills that's closer and then behind it you'll see a farther range of hills. Sometimes the prophets do that and he's looking and he's seeing the Babylonian judgment 
that was coming in 20 years, but he's also seeing the ultimate judgment that will happen when Jesus returns to earth, when he comes to judge the nations. And in Second Peter, it's described in this way. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. You see, the message of Zephaniah is judgment is coming. It was coming to the nation of Judah, but it is also coming for us, isn't it? You see, all that we see around us, this beautiful creation in Idaho, we live in a lovely place in the mountains and the sawtooths and so much to see in the beauty around us. The ultimate reality of all that you see around us is it is soon to be destroyed. That's the ultimate reality of everything you see. It is about to be destroyed when Jesus comes and he could come back any time. So the question is then, if that's true, how should we live? What is God looking for from us to live in light of this warning that he's given us about the judgment to come? Well, within, like I said, in this book of Zephaniah, this short book, there are four commands that give us a picture of what a humble heart looks like. The first command is in chapter 1, verse 7, where he writes this, Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. It will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I'll punish the princes, the king's sons, and I'll punish, etc. And he goes on and talks about all that he will do. What he calls us to do in the face of what's coming is to hush. Now, if you're like me, my tendency when... I find out something's coming is to do everything I can to try to prepare for it. Like those who heard about the hurricane. I better get my things together. I better pack up. Or in this case, I better make sure I get my life together. If judgment's coming, if God's going to return any time, any moment, then I better make sure I'm doing what God wants me to do and do all the right things and clean up my act, so to speak. But notice that isn't what God says to do first thing he says to do is to hush. Be silent. Contemplate what's coming. Don't scramble to try to fix it. Don't scramble to make it, to prepare yourself or to somehow avoid it. But instead, simply contemplate it's coming. You see, there's, uh, there's something about what God wants to do is that he wants to bring us to a place of helplessness. Now, in a hurricane, you know if you get farther, far enough away from the shore, you're probably going to be okay. But if you know the whole world's going to be destroyed, your whole nation and everything else is going to be destroyed, there's really nowhere to go. <laughs> and so you're helpless before him, which is exactly where God wants us. The natural man in us, our flesh, wants to be arrogant, to think somehow I can do something to make my life work. If I just figure out what God wants from me, if I just do the right thing, then somehow God will be obligated to bless me, to make my life work, to to give me what I want, to give me the comfort and satisfaction and joy and all those things that I want in my life. God's obligated to if I can just figure out what he wants. 
Well, what he wants from us, he says, is to be helpless before him, to hush, to be silent before him. I don't know if you remember the scene. There's a scene from one of the old Star Wars movies with Luke Skywalker and Chewbacca and Han Solo and Princess Leia where they've gotten into the enemy spaceship and they're trying to escape and they're running and they slide down this this hatch and they find out they're in the trash bin. (laughs) And they get in this trash compactor and the walls are closing in on them. And so they're doing everything they can to scramble and try to fix it and try to stop this thing from smashing them to death. And they try to prop things to block it, and that doesn't work. Until finally, all they can do is call on the radio to their robot friend, C-3PO, who plugs into the system and shuts down the trash system so that they can finally escape. You see, God, in his mercy and his love and his care for us, puts us in situations where we are beginning to get squeezed to the place where there's nothing we can do to fix it. Have you found that in your life? Where there's nowhere you can turn to fix your situation, to fix your life, and all you can do is turn to Him in your helplessness and say, Lord, I'm being squeezed. There's nothing I can do. I need you to come through here. I need you to fix it. God arranges life to bring us to a place of helplessness, of hushing, being silent, before him. This week was really a week like that for me. God periodically does that. As Arden said, I, he had to be between two perfectionists here. Yeah, I'm a perfectionist. And I like to try to pull it off and figure out, okay, this is what a good father does. And this is what a, a good husband does. And this is what a good pastor does. And, and I get all those things and I work hard at trying to fulfill them. And after a while, God just lets everything kind of fall through. And that's the way it was this week for me. I began to see ways in which I was really failing my wife, failing my kids. I could see areas of my ministry where um, things I didn't like and things in my own attitudes that I did not like that I knew were sin and wrong. And yet I found I just couldn't go out and make it better. I couldn't just fix it. Now that's a hard place to be. But realize it's part of God's mercy and His love towards us because what he longs for is a relationship with us where we truly trust him and love him and depend on him and as long as we're scrambling around trying to fix everything and do it all ourselves we have no need of him God loves you enough to arrange life to bring you to a place of helplessness so that's what he wants first of all his first command we see here is to hush before him. Chapter 2, he goes on to give us the second command of what God is looking for in a truly humble heart. Chapter 2, let me summarize it. He basically says in chapter 2, I will, even though this massive judgment is coming and everything will be destroyed, there will be a few that I will save. There will be a remnant that I will deliver. So his command to us in the midst of that, as he says in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility, 
Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. One word really strikes me there, may have as I read it to you, perhaps. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, why doesn't he say, if you seek the Lord, I guarantee you'll be saved in the day of the Lord's anger? Why doesn't he do that? I think it's because he always wants to keep us humble, (laughs) dependent, You see, if we could somehow figure out what to do, that if I seek the Lord just in the right way, I'm guaranteed that He's got to do it for me. He's got to protect me. He's got to give me what I want in life. Then we wouldn't need Him anymore. Again, we would be depending on ourselves rather than Him. And He wants to remind us that salvation is always a gift from Him. And it does not depend on me doing it right. It depends on me simply receiving the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. And he brings me to a place where I can receive it. So it's all of him from beginning to end. But he does want us to take the effort to seek the Lord. That word seek that he uses there is one that describes using all that you are, your energy, your strength, your time, your money, all that you are to seek him, to seek to get to know him, to seek to trust him, to seek to depend on him. Earlier in chapter 1, he condemns those Israelites that were seeking the Lord, but also seeking other idols. You see, God never wants us to live in a way that, I want to trust God, but God plus money, bank account, my job, success, comfort, or whatever you want to fill in that blank, God says, "Uh uh-uh. Seek me with the whole heart. Remember Jesus' statement in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek him first. And so God, through Zephaniah, comes to Judah and says, Seek me. You've been seeking other things. You've been running away. Seek me. Now why, during this big revival that Josiah's brought in, is suddenly God saying, I'm still bringing judgment. You're not seeking me like you should. Why is that? Well, as we look at the history of it, we see that right after Josiah died, the people quit seeking him. In fact, there's a very revealing statement talking about Josiah when he brought about this great revival. In uh, 2 Chronicles 34, verses 32, it says, Moreover, Josiah made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him as the book of the law was read. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Do you get that? It wasn't from their hearts He was king, so he imposed it on them, said, Now you are going to serve Yahweh, not these other gods. Then it says, Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. But God knew it was in their hearts. They were simply conforming to what Josiah as the king commanded, but there was no real seeking of God from the bottom of their hearts. You see, God wants us not to just conform to what a good Christian should be, 
not just do outwardly what he's calling us to do, but to truly seek him with our hearts. That's what a humble heart is, a heart that says, God, I don't seek you well. I know I fail. I know I don't trust you like I should. But I'm going to seek you and do what I can to get to know you. Notice what he says here about it. He says three times, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Let me just give you a picture of what I think the seeking is that he's talking about. When I was engaged to Jeannie, my wife, she lived in San Jose. I lived up in, this was in the Bay Area. I lived up in the Palo Alto area. And she got off work around 5, 5.30. And if I was going to spend much time with her at all, I would have to meet her then. And I had other things I was doing. So I would drive what normally any other time of day would be a 20-minute drive. I would take an hour and a half fighting traffic to get down to see her. Why? Because I was committed to seeking to spend time with this woman. I was willing to take the time and the energy and whatever it took to do that. And I don't particularly like traffic. Now, some of you might, but I don't. (laughs) And yet I was willing to do that because my relationship with her was that important. You see, God wants us to seek Him with that kind of diligence, that kind of effort. And it says, seek the Lord, seek to know Him, seek to trust Him. Secondly, he says, seek righteousness. It's important that as we seek God that we remember you can't be seeking God and not be seeking to obey him too. Sometimes I hear statements like, well, I'm going to get to know him and and trust him and depend on him. And when I get to know him, then he'll clean up my life. But I'm just going to get to know him. Well, there's truth to that. But they always go hand in hand. That's why it says, seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here it says, seek the Lord and seek righteousness. You see, we need to seek to obey him all the time while we are seeking to get to know him, both. And he also says, seek humility. You see, that's what God is ultimately most interested in from us. Not that we're doing it right, Not that we're keeping our act together. Not that we are righteous in ourselves, because we're not. But that we are humble before him, saying, Lord, I need you every moment. The message of Zephaniah is the judgment is coming, but it's the humble who will be saved from it. And God is looking for humble hearts who will depend on him, who will seek him because they know they need him. Remember what Jesus said as he began his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, that's what God is looking for, the poor in spirit, those who recognize their neediness. Next week, we'll be hearing from John Fisher. I like John, one of John Fisher's songs that says, I'm not one who's got it all in place, telling you what you should do. No, no. I'm just one old hungry beggar showing you where I found food. That's what God's looking for. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount produces despair in the natural man, helplessness. The very thing Jesus means for it to do. As long as we have a self-righteous, conceited notion that we can carry out our Lord's teaching... 
God will allow us to go on until we break our ignorance over some obstacle. Then we are willing to come to him as paupers and receive from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the first principle of the kingdom of God. See, what God's looking for is humble people who know they need him, not who do it all right. So he says, seek him. First, hush before him. Secondly, seek him. And then the first part of chapter 3, verse 1 through 13 in this section, he gives us the third command of what a humble heart looks like. And this command is, wait for him. Verse 8. Now, in the first seven verses of chapter 3, it describes the sinfulness of the people of Judah at that time, that God had been seeking them. He said, I've been among you as a righteous king. I've tried to teach you all I could. I've done what I could to try to make you understand the truth. I've brought my justice to you. Verse 7, I said, surely you will revere me. You will accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all I've appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. You see what happens when we begin to seek the Lord? And you begin to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to put you first. I will seek you. I will follow you. What happens? You begin to fall on your face, don't you? You begin to see, I can't pull it off. In myself, I don't have the resources to do everything right. And though God is teaching me, he's with me, yet there's something about me that is rebellious against him. And when you begin to realize that, then you begin to see even more how much you need him. Should we seek God? Absolutely. But as we do so, what will happen is we'll see more desperately how much we need him to work in our lives. And therefore, the message of verse 8 comes through loud and clear. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to the prey, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, my burning anger. And then notice verse 9. For then, when we wait on him, I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. He goes on to describe how he will create a people who will worship him, who will be forgiven, and who will be truly humble before him. You see what God's saying here? He's saying, when you struggle to obey him and you fall on your face, then look to him and wait for him to change you. Keep seeking him, but all the time know that ultimately you're waiting on him to change your heart, to lead you to worship him, to lead you to really trust him at a profound level. You see, that's what a truly humble heart says is, Lord, I need you to change me. I can't do it. And he says he will as we wait upon him. This is a mystery to me, this whole Christian life, because on the one hand, he says, seek. On the other hand, he says, wait. You see, the Christian life is this balance between discipline, seeking to do what's right, and dependence, waiting on God to do it in you. Sometimes we get unbalanced. It becomes all discipline. That's what I tend to do. Or some of us become more all dependence. Well, I'm just going to wait for God to act. I don't, you know, he's going to do it. I can't do it. And, And we do nothing. But the Christian life is a balance between discipline and dependence. 
That's what he calls us to. But the bottom line is God is the one who has to change us. God is the one who must work on our hearts to make us like himself. Oswald Chambers, again, writes this. We are apt to say that because a man has natural ability, therefore he'll make a good Christian. But it's not a question of our equipment or ability, but of our poverty. Not of what we bring with us, but of what God puts into us. Not a question of natural virtues, of strength of character, knowledge, and experience. All that is of no avail in the matter. The only thing that avails is that we are taken up into the big compelling of God and made his comrades. The comradeship of God is made up out of men who know their poverty. He can do nothing with the man who thinks that he is of use to God. Do you hear that? He can do nothing with the man who thinks that he is of use to God. But when we come to him in humility, recognizing our neediness, our poverty before him every day, saying, Lord, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your life in me. I need to depend on you and your forgiveness every moment of every day because I do not have what it takes. When we live as, as a pauper, as he says, then God begins to bless He begins to change. He begins to mold us into what he's called us to be. And that brings us to our fourth command he gives us. Here, starting in verse 14, where he says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So he says, Hush, seek the Lord, recognize your poverty and wait upon him. And if we are humble before him, then the result will be joy, rejoicing. You see, real joy in the Christian life doesn't come from doing it all right. It comes from recognizing that God is working in your life. I can't do it, but he's at work. He is changing me. He has forgiven me. Listen to what we're to rejoice about. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. He's forgiven us. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear no disaster no more. You see what he does when we come to him in humility? He takes away fear. So we don't have to fear what's coming. Yes, he'll bring hard things into our lives because he wants to continue to teach us to depend on him. But we needn't fear because the King is in our midst. He is for us, not against us. He loves us. He's on our side and he's forgiven us. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not let your hands fall limp. And then this verse 17, which is the key verse, I think, to all of Zephaniah. What God longs for in our lives, what he longed for in Judah when they were in rebellion against him. The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior, or more literally, a warrior who saves. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God is a God who must judge, 
because He's holy. But God brings justice into our lives and brings difficulty into our lives because what He really longs for is an intimacy with us, a delight in us, a close relationship with us where there is joy because we're rejoicing in Him and as Hardin put it earlier, He's rejoicing in us. Can you believe what a wonderful picture that is? That he would shout for joy because of who you are. Not because of what you've made yourself. Not because you've got it together. But because of his work in your life and what he's done in you. And the picture here is one of, of incredible intimacy. He says, he's in your midst. He's with us. And it says, he's a saving warrior. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. He saves us. That's what gives him joy and delight in us is that he has called us and made us his own. And then he gives this picture, Zephaniah does, he will be quiet in his love. Now imagine the scene here. Hardin already gave you a picture of a troubadour singing to the one he loves. God is like that in this picture. And there's a picture of being quiet in his love. The same imagery is used in the Song of Solomon, which is an incredibly romantic book about the love between a man and a woman. And when it says he will be quiet in his love, it's a picture that God longs to be with us and have an intimate time with us like two lovers who are together who you know don't even need to sweet whisper sweet nothings in the other person's ear in your lover because the moment is so intimate, nothing needs to be said. That's what God longs to share with you, that kind of intimate love, that intimate care, where you delight in just being with one another without having to say a word. See, God wants that. He wants that kind of relationship with you. And the message of the book of Zephaniah is that you can have that as we're willing to be humble and realize we can't do it. We need him every moment. If we'll hush ourselves before him and seek him and wait on him and then rejoice in him what he has done. Well, Zephaniah gave this message to the people of Judah. Within 20 years, the entire nation was destroyed. The truth is, as we sit here today, we don't know when Christ is returning, but the ultimate reality is everything around us will be destroyed. So let it be a warning call to us to humble ourselves before him, to seek a relationship with him that is true and intimate and good and beautiful and full of joy. I like the way that G. Campbell Morgan described this. He was a great preacher of this century in England. He said, His love is so great that the impure parts of us must be destroyed for the sake of the larger issues and the larger values. But thank God, wherever there is a repentant heart, even in the midst of utter corruption, he takes that one, he brings it to himself, And he breaks into song over the restoration of a soul. God sings over you when you come to him 
with humility. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your great, great love that's willing to purge us of everything that would keep us from you, our arrogance, our pride, our sense that somehow we need you plus other things, or our sense that you don't really matter that much, so we better take life into our own hands. Lord, we are so arrogant. But we thank you that you continue to humble us and love us and seek us, that we might spend intimate moments with you of delight. Thank you that you rejoice in us. I can't even imagine how you could sometimes, and yet you do. We praise you. Let us be people of true humility before you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.